Welcome to The Drop, the official podcast of the 130th Airlift Wing. I'm Master Sergeant Eugene Christ, a public affairs specialist with the 130th Airlift Wing. One of the missions of The Drop is to highlight unique stories of our unit members. We are a unit with members who have diverse backgrounds and life experiences. So it is our goal to tell these stories of how these incredible individuals became a part of our unit. With me today is one such individual, Staff Sergeant Kyle McCormick a defender assigned to the 130th Security Forces Squadron. Thank you for being on the show today, Sergeant McCormick. Thanks for having me. So uh, what I'd like to start with today is, uh, can you tell tell us a little bit about your job and some of your background, uh, not only as a Air Guardsman, but also uh, in your civilian job? Yeah, so um, the some of the primary roles of Security Forces member uh, on this installation and active duty in general is basically providing the security and safety to effectively complete the mission. Um, With security forces, we are responsible for base defense and ensuring that no uh, unauthorized uh, people get access to the installation or to some of our more secure resources. Another one of our duties is providing safety and security for the members here on base, making sure that people come here and they feel safe. They know that there is a response force if something goes wrong. And uh, basically, that's providing uh, basic security services is what we we do. Um, My background is being in, is uh, whenever I was growing up, um, after I graduated basic training in tech school, I uh, became a police officer with New Haven Police, with the uh, New Haven Police Department in Mason County. West Virginia, um, graduated the basic police academy and from the uh, West Virginia State Police Academy. And from there, I worked in New Haven for about two years. And then later on, I moved into uh, Mason City, where I worked for an additional year to two years. During that time, I deployed to uh, the United Arab Emirates in 2014 and got a bigger, more holistic taste of what security forces really is and uh, giving protection to uh, larger assets and security. And from then on, I uh, got a full-time job here at the base where I am actually a full-time AGR or active guard reservist here. And I just really, really love this job. This is probably the best job I've had. Um, and just, it gives you, it lets you expand your career field and what your primary roles and responsibilities are. And it also gives you a more holistic view of what it means to be an Air National Guardsman. And for me, an NCO, it lets you really get a, uh, a full grasp on everything instead of just a, a part-time approach to, you know, just coming up here one weekend a month. Sure. So... So, uh, not to put the the best part up front, but can we talk a little bit about um, the pressures of a guardsman? Um, and I know specifically we're going to talk about, you know, some of the resiliency, your resiliency story. But uh, talk to me a little bit about how... Being a security forces member, some of those pressures that are specific to that career field. Uh, so, sure, like I said at the beginning, uh, some of the pressures are is basically like you are that 
first line of defense. You are there to make sure that no nobody that's not supposed to be on this base gets on the base, and you are there to make sure that the fence line is secure. You know, so sure. one of the roles and responsibilities that we have to do is we have to do uh, perimeter fence line checks. So we physically have to walk around fence lines, which includes up here on the hill, back behind the bushes and everything else. And, you know, I've slipped and busted my butt a couple of times going through there. So, you know, that can be a little bit stressful, but you have to do it. Um, you have to be resilient to different changing weather circumstances. You know, you have to be able to do this stuff in the rain, cold, um, sleet and snow, like all, all day, every day, you have to be ready for that. Uh, and a couple, I mean, just going off of that perspective, like with the aircraft and everything else, you know, we have to sit there and watch, you know, eight hours a day. And sometimes it's not the the funnest thing to do. Sure. And it gets boring, but you have to keep in the back of your mind, like, this is why we're, the reason why we're here is to make sure that these guys are taken off safely, is to make sure that these uh, resources are are defended and that people are able to do their mission effectively. So just a couple, those are just a couple of the stressors that come with the job. And then being, uh, you know, if you get tasked to be emergency operations, uh, control controller or uh, ECC controller, you know, you have to be able to respond or dispatch forces appropriately. You have to know or be familiar with some of the quick reaction checklists uh, for different instances you have to be able to coordinate with other uh, departments and, and agencies on base and off base for different instances. Uh, you have to be able to respond quickly and timely uh, and effectively to different scenarios. And then as you go through your career and you develop into an NCO, you get tasked with the responsibility of uh, being a flight chief. And now you're responsible for the entire shift. Everything that goes on that day, it's, it's, it's on you. So you have to make sure that you're educated and how how to fill out forms, how to respond to different situations and how to uh, effectively manage people and resolve issues. So sure. And all, all of this while trying to manage your own personal yeah. life and like, you know, existing every day in this like crazy 2020 that we're living in. Yeah. It's, it's almost like uh, one of the things that I usually do is, you know, and a lot of people talk about separating your, your home life from your work life. And this is definitely one of those career fields where, you come to work, you know, you put on the uniform, you take a breath and it's like, okay, now I'm security forces. And then whenever you take it off, okay, now I'm a family man. I'm sure you know, for my family and stuff. So, so that, and that kind of leads us into uh, basically your story. So if you would, you know, start, take us back to uh, where all this kind of began and like, we're kind of going to go through the, the steps that kind of to, to led you down this path that kind of, and it's timely specifically this month uh, as it's suicide awareness month. But uh, let's go back and kind of talk about the things that led you into your experiences with, uh, with suicide. I uh, met a girl while I was overseas and we got together uh, whenever I came back home. And I didn't know that she had some mental health issues until later on, uh, whenever she uh, actually did uh, try to commit suicide. And that's a pretty crazy story. And that uh, I was actually working uh, at Mason City Police Department, um, 
whenever she started acting a little bit weird. And I knew that there was some signs of suicide from taking some of the courses here at the base. Sure. You know, she was very, being very distanced, uh, very, uh, you know, always re- like telling me that she, how much she loved me and how much she, you know, uh, loved her family and stuff like that. And I just got a, you know, kind of a hint that something was off, you know, just so some of her actions and behaviors. And let me go back to this all just started in one day. It wasn't like a slow build. Like the night before, everything was completely fine. I didn't know, have any inclination that she was suicidal at all um, until this day. And so I went home and I started trying to see where she was at. She wasn't wanting to tell me where she was at. She wasn't wanting to tell me anything, what was going on. Um, and, and, you know, Luckily, I had uh, her iPhone uh, it was through mine, so I was able to find find it through like a little phone tracker app. And uh, I found out where she was at, and you know, I was trying to see what was going on, and I couldn't determine whether it's like has she been kidnapped or how what was going on. I didn't know, so I uh, called up the control center. And I told them what was going on, and they dispatched uh, sheriff's deputies with me to go uh, find her. So, and at the time, you were a city policeman. Yeah, I was a city policeman. I was, you know, like I said, I was in full uniform. I'd just come off work. And uh, the biggest thing with me is, like, I didn't think she was trying to kill herself. I thought she had been kidnapped or something because sure. she was saying things uh, like, uh, I can't talk about it, you know. I don't know. I don't know what's going on and and stuff. And I was trying to be on the phone with her. And I said, you know, hey, if you're if you're in danger, if you're if you're being kidnapped, just say, you know, uh, just say like yes or no. Just say yes if you are and no if you're not. And she just said, you know, yes. And so I thought, oh, okay, there's something going on. Sure. So that's why just that's why, you know, I called control and I was like, hey, can we get some sheriff's deputies down here to help me go out here and find her because she was outside of my jurisdiction at this point. She was way outside of it. So we went down there and I was still in uniform and whenever we came on the scene, uh, a guy down there, uh, it was on a farm and he had said that he had heard a gunshot and they found a suicide note inside the car. So everybody thought that, that she had already killed herself. And so, you know, they took my gun and uh, weapons belt and everything off and was just like, hey, you know, you have to come to the realization she's probably dead. Wow, I can't I can't imagine. Yeah, so, and, it, you know, we had built a really strong relationship like I did. I cared about her. I loved her and stuff. And uh, so I started, you know, like breaking down a little bit, you know, sure. crying on stuff like that. And uh, the next thing I know, she comes out of the woods. So it's like, well, she's not. I thought somebody had, I thought somebody else did it. So I was just like, was there somebody else down there? Like what's going on? Right. Everybody was telling me that she was dead. Now she's right here. So, uh, ended up, you know, she obviously didn't kill herself, but she had fired off around to make sure the gun was still working uh, before she did it. So from there she went to St. Mary's and was, uh, diagnosed with depression, uh, bipolar depression, uh, anxiety, and uh, manic, uh, manic bipolar disorder, which is basically like mania, is where you go into little fits. Sure. 
and things and then come out of it um, and back into it randomly. So she was uh, medicated and sent on her way. So the at, just to kind of at the time you were a city policeman mm-hmm. still still serving, you know, yeah. daily uh and an Air National Guardsman yes. on on top of that. And plus you're trying to live with this person who is having her own issues and help yeah. her, helping her through. So please continue. I'm sorry to interrupt. Oh, it's you. okay. But yeah, then this was uh, literally I came back from UAE in November and this is ha- this happened in I believe May or June. Mm-hmm. So it, was, it wasn't that far away from whenever I I just came back home too. But um so she got diagnosed with that, came home and uh you know, it was kind of taking her medication intermittently and th- then it's she started to slip some more and she started to slip into using different drugs. She always had a problem with pain, pain pills because she was prescribed them at a very young age. She had a a softball incident where she had broken her collarbone and uh, her supernator muscle was deteriorated. So she had actual disability. She couldn't, she has very limited range of motion in Mm -hmm. her, uh, in one of her arms. So she was prescribed medication very early on and she started buying the stuff off the street again because she was complaining of the pain and stuff. And she tried to go get a prescription from a doctor, which they did give her, but she slowly started abusing it because again, she, she had recovered from a heroin addiction before I had met her Uh is one of the things. I don't think I said that earlier, but she was an addict in the past. It supposedly had been recovered. So, she started slipping into the pain pills, and of course, that led to other stuff, um, and soon into opiates. And uh, which, of course, in this region is prevalent, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so, anyways, um, I don't mean to jump back. And- no, no, you're fine. <laughs> um, after the suicide, after or after the suicide attempt. And after the medication and the hospital visit, I was uh, instructed to go to a two-week, to take two weeks off because it was a traumatic incident that happened, uh, you know, uh, with the police, to, with while I was a police officer. And sure. I also had to go get a psychological um, evaluation. Sure. So I did that. Everything was fine. Cleared everything up. And uh, they I came back into work, though, and they were like, hey, uh I don't know what you want to do, but the council members are pretty upset that we had to put you through this stuff Um, because apparently with small police departments like that um, and other police departments, if you don't take the civil service exam, Uh you're not considered civil service. You don't really have a union against you because most most big police departments like, and I'm sure some cops, if they listen to this would be like, this is crazy. How could they do that? Well, the not having civil service uh, certification basically means that the town can hire you and fire you for any reason at all. Hmm. They don't have to, you know, if they don't like you, they can, they can get rid of you. Sure. So um, the chief sat me down and was just like, Hey, the council's pretty upset with what we did. Um, apparently I was supposed to go to them about this funding uh, for to having you psychologically evaluated. And I personally, and you know, my chief thought that was a, bunch of crap that he like you know that i needed it that he was going to send me to it regardless Mm -hmm. 
So he did, and they were upset with the entire situation. They were afraid, or you know, that she was going to do something like this again. Sure. Um, and so they were just like, my chief was like, I know that you're trying to go to school and stuff like that because at the time I was, I was uh, getting trying to go to uh, to college full time and, and stuff like that. And he was just like, uh, maybe this would be a good time to put in like your resignation because I'm telling you, if you go, if you go to the council meeting tonight, they're going to fire you. And that's going to look way worse on your record than if you just resign. So unfortunately I had to resign and it was basically because the council members were afraid that she was going to do something similar to this again and that she was unpredictable and they didn't like that. I was out there in uniform out of jurisdiction. So not a couple days later, I had to resign from that position. And then I was unemployed for a while and I had to get on unemployment, look for jobs. And at the time, the job market was really bad. I didn't have a degree. I couldn't hardly find a job anywhere. And luckily, I was uh, picked up as a temporary tech technician here at the base. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started working here at the base. Um, then I got a full-time job as a state employee here and, you know, was happy doing that. And the other hand started to slip back into the, into the pills and into the opiates. So I was having to try to deal with that and her addiction, trying to get her, uh, into, uh, NA, a narcotics anonymous. Mm-hmm. Um, so you two were living together at the time. Yeah, we okay. were, we were living together and, uh, it was just a constant battle. Like sure. it was, and I found out now that I was, um, I was in what's called a, uh, a codependency loop where, um, she needed me to be codependent on her success. So what would happen and what, what the loop is, is person, um, that is addicted will start doing the addiction, start using drugs and things like that and uh, getting really bad. The codependent person, me, would start being like, hey, you need to stop or else I'm going to leave or you're going to be out of here. Addicted person would be like, I'm so sorry. I'm an addict. I need help. They'll go to get help for like a week or two. Everything will be good. I'll be really happy and stuff. And then slowly but surely, they'll start to slip back into the dependency and the addiction again. Sure. And And this wasn't... This wasn't a one-time thing. This no, was... it was it was over and over. It was like I need, and then I would address it, be like, "Hey, I'm gonna leave. If you don't get help, okay, I'll go get help. Go get help for like two or three weeks. Everything's good, and then go back into being an addict. Again. Sure, it was just over and over and over again. And uh, so, of course, you know, she started meeting up with some bad people, and uh, think crazy things started happening at the house where she was leaving at all hours of the night. She, uh, you know, she was taking the car. I couldn't uh, keep my wallet out because I would wake up and there'd be a hundred, two hundred dollars missing from my account. She would go out and buy drugs with it, middle of the night and stuff. So I was having to deal with that and still working full time. Sure. And on top of that, I was also trying to promote myself and level up here. Sure. So I went and did the uh, the Army's Best Warrior Challenge which that year I actually won it uh, with uh, another airman of mine, uh, which he's, he's, uh, he's left now. But um, is now the best word challenge. That's basically a, it's, it's a day or two day. It's a, it's a three day event uh, that the army puts on. And it's basically just like three days of absolute, like 
heck. Right. You know, it's very, very intensive, like mentally and physically. Yeah. There's, you know, stuff like ops. There's an obstacle course. There's a seven mile uh, ruck race with a 45 pack, 45 pound pack. There is a, a range day where you do stuff from firing to disassembling, reassembling weapons, setting up landmines, doing uh, buddy drags and things, um, calling for fire. Now was it, this was the was this the first time that we they had actually allowed air guard members yes. in the okay yeah and uh, you know different things like night land nav like that was a crazy experience for me because I you know I was decent in, at land navigation but at night it's like you know complete pitch black sure. you're up there especially the at Camp Dawson yeah and you're <laughs> you're up there in the mountains and it's just like uh, it it was it was just crazy but uh, then you know going through that. And then coming home to the same stuff that I was having to deal with. Sure. You know, and further along the line, I did a combat leadership course, which is uh, a month long course for security forces members, which is basically how to be uh, a leader and not just that, but like be able to lead in combat, be able to, it teaches you how to do land nav more effectively, do a ruck uh, more effectively, how to, uh, you know, prep for combat, how to write an op order and a warning order, how to, you know, get your get your troops ready to go uh, uh, to do combat missions, how to run patrols and operations and things. Really awesome course for security forces members. It's really awesome course. While I was going through that, um, I was also having to deal with her, and, and apparently while I was gone, like, she had gotten into some bad uh, business with uh, a drug dealer, and uh, I apparently sold somebody some some fake stuff uh, that I wasn't aware of, and they had actually knocked her out on on our front porch, beat her up, and then stole our my only car, stole it. So she actually had to get a couple of friends of hers to go back and beat those guys up and steal it again. It's like a Grand Theft Auto thing, you know, and it's like a story, you know, it's sure. just crazy. It's hard to believe that it actually happened. Yeah. Sure. And uh, so I had a couple of things that got stolen from mine. Like my dad had gave me a, uh, a really nice sleeping bag and some gear that was stolen from me and I still haven't recovered it. You know, it was just gone. Um, I've had my guitar. It was, it was whenever I came home, it was gone. You know, sure. Amplifier was gone. Guitar was gone. Um, I had her dad had gave us a couple thousand dollars of some nice DeWalt tools all gone and he's stolen. So I got done with combat leaders course and I was coming home to that. You know, it's just like what in the world? And uh, after I had come back and things, uh, things were still going in the wrong direction. So I finally gave her an ultimatum and, uh, I talked to her dad about it and her dad was just like, you know, you can't, it's just like raising a child. You can't just threaten to punish the child. Sure. They're going to learn if you just keep threatening and you never act upon it, they're just going to keep doing it. So you, if you're going to say you're going to do something, you need to do it. So I finally was just like, if you don't get help, I'm going to leave you. And that's that. And I had later on, uh, after that statement, you know, she had agreed to go to, therapy in Tennessee, which before she had left, I had found out that she was cheating on me, but I told her, I said, if you go and get help and everything gets straightened out, I'll forgive you for it and we'll be fine. Sure. So she went to therapy in Tennessee and, uh, 
you know, that was like a month long thing. Well, that's, that was like a rehab kind of. Yeah, it was, it was a rehabilitation for like a month. And statistically, most addicts don't get better unless it's like a six month program. So after the month, she was really wanting to come out. So I had a feeling in the back of my mind that it was just going to go south again. Sure. Which it did. She came back and within like two weeks, um, had an incident where I was trying, like at this time also, um, before Best Warrior, before uh, Combat Leaders course, I started going to school for uh, at Western State um, University. So you're you're training for Best Warrior. Best Warrior. I'm doing Combat Leaders course. I'm in f- school full time, which twelve credit hours a semester. Brick, sure. Like not online. Actually going to school mm-hmm. every day. And doing all this and still trying to maintain, you know, Dean's List, which I was I was successful in doing, maintaining the Dean's List all through that time. And at the same time, I'm taking her to rehab in Tennessee. She's coming back. And in my first, uh, the first week of school, first day, this is going into uh, after she had came back from rehab. Uh, the part that she screwed up on was she took the, she took the car cause I, you know, trusted her. I let her have the car and she said, okay, I'll be back before you have to go to school in the morning. You know, she took it at like seven o'clock at night. I did not come back until noon the next day. Mm-hmm. And I was already late for school and I said, this is it. I'm done. So filed for divorce, kicked her out of the house and you know that's whenever my you know realization of everything started to come in so a couple months down the line uh you know still going to school and doing everything i started just uh you know i started into like running more uh, coming towards the end of the year and stuff Doing, doing things that like we talk about as far as like things that are like meant to build your resiliency, to, mm-hmm. you know, exercise, like yeah, those exercise things. exercise and meditation. I was doing that and I started uh, training for a half marathon and, you know, I was doing that for months, you know, visiting family and stuff. And then I, uh, I started to push it more and more to that eventually led to me, uh, getting an injury in my knee, um, iliotibial band syndrome, which is just a really bad uh, symptom or syndrome in in your knee where the muscle and fascia kind of gets really inflamed and uh, it can, you know, almost cripple you for for about a month. And it did me like it was hard for me to walk or do anything um, for about a month, two months. So that's whenever everything started to come in because I was just like, crap, now I can't just run from everything. Right. So the, your, your main coping mechanism was kind of gone. Yeah. It was well, literally just to run from it. You know what I mean? I started sure. thinking about it as just take off, you know, let's go on a five, 10 mile run. Yeah. You know, it's fun. And uh, to circle back just a little bit, like uh, I know you had mentioned before at one point that you've had, you had to revive her with Narcan yeah. from an overdose. Yeah. And that, that was uh that was another experience that, that had happened to me. Uh, and it wasn't like, okay, it happened here, but I live over here. This all happened in my house. Sure. This was all in the same, same place. So one of the things I had to 
walk by every single day was a busted uh, solid wood interior door. And the reason why I was busted is because whenever she was using again, uh, there was one day she had gone to the bathroom and locked herself in the bathroom. And so, you know, it was fine, whatever people, you know, give her privacy. Or sure. But it had been like 45 minutes and me knowing her habits, I was just like, something's not right. Sure. So I started listening and I could hear her like stumbling around and yelling and moaning and stuff, which is what she would do because uh, with her mental condition where if she, whenever she does opiates and things, she doesn't, especially heroin like she was using. It's not just like she falls asleep or whatever, like some people do. She literally turns into like this zombie type person that will yell and moan and flail around. And it's just like, just like somebody that's basically acting like a zombie, like literally. Hmm. And so I heard that and I heard her fall into the bathtub and where my house is a two story house. I did not have a ladder big enough to reach up to that window that was in the bathroom. So I knew something was wrong and I didn't hear her moving anymore. So I had to get in there. So I had to actually kick down the, uh, the door to break in there and pick her up out of the bathtub, set her on the floor. And I had to go into her bedroom and get, uh, her, you know, she kept Narcan in the, in her uh, dressing room. So I got that, I hit her with that and nothing was happening. She was still just like gasping for breath, like death rattle and everything. So I was just like, you know, crap. No. So I called 911 and everybody showed up. And a couple of the people that showed up, um, one of the guys was actually a guy that I worked with in Mason Police Department. So it's really embarrassing for me. Sure. Because I had everybody there that knew me, you know, basically throughout my career had seen me. You know? Sure. And they were reviving her, bringing her out. And they were all just looking at me like, man, what are you doing with her? Why is you, why are you doing this? And the only way I could explain it to somebody is it's like, if your child was an addict, you would not give up. Sure. You would do whatever you could. And that's what it felt like to me. Sure. She stopped feeling like a person that I was in a relationship with to a person that I was just trying to keep alive and to have six and to, you know, keep going. Like she became more of a sister to me than an actual person in the end. And, um, so yeah, she had, you know, gotten a revive from that. And literally like they did that and I had to get dressed and go to work. You know, now I didn't, I, I didn't tell anybody about this stuff. So nobody knew this stuff was going on. That, that, when you say no one, you're talking about the guard, us, us the one thirtieth, yeah, had no, no idea. Nobody at the garden had any idea because I didn't want to talk about it because I was embarrassed about it. Sure. And that's like that, that is the, the stigma of, of guardsmen is we don't want to like that whole looming thing of like, I don't want all of these personal issues like affecting my career at the guard. Yeah, absolutely. Like I didn't want, uh, I didn't want to bring my home life to work. Sure. So I would, you know, I went to work and everything, you know, everybody thought everything was fine and nothing was going on. And even after all this stuff and I told everybody about this, they were like, man, we had no idea. 
So it, now leading into that, so you'd had all these experience with your, uh, I guess now at this time, ex-wife, mm-hmm. um, you were, had lost the, the one coping me- mechanism that you had, which was, you know, running. Yeah. And so kind of go into h- how, like, <laughs> basically it was like, what happened next? Yeah. So, um, like I said, everything that happened happened in this house that I was living in. Sure. And so I was walking through constantly being reminded of different things that had happened, you know, all the time. And so, you know, I go into a room and I can remember different situations, different things that happened. I, you know, remember going into the living room and seeing drugs or whatever laying there. I go upstairs into the bathroom and see that kicked in bathroom door every day. Like, sure. It's always there. So, as things went on and I couldn't really work out anymore and I was trying to recover, I was going to physical therapy and, you know, trying to get better. Um, I started having these moments where I was just like, man, you know, yoga and meditation seems to be all right, but something's still amiss. I'm still feeling gray. I'm still feeling a little bit gloomy. So then I thought to myself, you know what, like you get sick, you get hurt, you go to the doctor to get treatment. I'm going to go to a psychologist, see if there's something here, you know, with me. And I didn't tell anybody, like I said, I didn't tell anybody any of this. Yeah, this was all of your own personal volition. Yeah. So at the time I was, I got it and I got an AGR job during this whole time that I was going through all this stuff. Sure. And so I had TRICARE and I'd went to uh, a therapist and I started seeing a therapist and there I was diagnosed with, uh, she diagnosed me with post-traumatic stress disorder um, because people think PTSD and they think, oh, you had to go to a war zone. Right. You, you were in combat. You know, yeah, you were in combat or something. But it can happen more reasons than that. Uh, like, for instance, if, you know, somebody, like, you know, rapes you or somebody has, uh, you know, robbed, mugs you out in the street or even, like, violent car accidents uh, experiences, you know, like mine, like where you've had to go, like literally live in this crap for so long. Sure. It can all reverberate to symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. And if you look at the, the actual wording of it, it's something that is, it's a traumatic experience that you have experienced through. And this is the the post or after repercussions of having that traumatic experience. Right. And we, we talk about a lot in the guard about wingmen and, you know, we talk about resiliency and like you, you had done everything right. You were doing, you know, (laughs) you were doing the things that we talk about to like try to build resiliency, exercising Mm -hmm. those things. And like you, you still fell into these things. And I, I I feel like that's a a really important, you know, point to make that like, you know, maybe you should have reached out, but regardless of that, you were doing everything right. Yeah. And like I had even, uh, you know, started going to church and things like that and doing all that stuff. And I'll say this too, like some people can go through what I went through and, you know, they can do the resiliency things and they can get through it and everything be fine. They don't have to go to therapy. Sure. Everybody is different though. Like some people, uh, you know, are just, everybody's built genetically different. Everybody has different viewpoints on life and stuff. Um, it's just like 
with sports. Some guys can play football until they're, you know, 45, 50. Sure. Other guys, you know, they're at 35, 30, you know, 32, 33, they're, they're done. You know, um, some guys can lift huge amounts of weights all their life. Some guys, you know, have to slow it down whenever they get older. And I'm talking like that because I have an, uh, a bachelor's in exercise science too. Sure. So that's how I equate these things with mental health is kind of like the same thing with, with exercise. Um, and with mental health in my, you know, limited viewpoint of it is like, I was saying some people, you know, are born and they can get through all this stuff, uh, and they can just run it out and everything's fine, you know, and that sure they have good genetics and they can just go through it without any therapy. Everybody's different though. Like with me, I tried these different things and I was still feeling like something was missing or something was a little bit off. Sure. And being an NCO, I thought to myself, okay, if I'm not operating at my 100%, if I can't be honest about what happened, if I can't be honest with myself and I have to keep secrets from everybody, sure. then how am I expecting my airmen that I'm bringing up to do what's what they're supposed to do and telling me about these things and being honest with, with, with me and going to seek and help if I can't even do that myself? Sure. You know, how am I supposed to give them 100% if I'm not at 100%? Of course. So started going to therapy and that's whenever I was, you know, diagnosed with what they diagnosed me with. And I started the treatment process. And one of the things that I noticed, uh, first off, and one of the main reasons I started going to therapy too, wasn't just because of the feelings and emotions that I was having. But it was also because I had a lot of physical symptoms too. And physical symptoms for me manifested in, like horrible stomach cramps and bloating and gas and just like horrible, like experiences with my gut. Like I would wake up and no matter what I ate, it would just give me horrible gas all day. Sure. And if I would eat nothing, it would still tear, tear me up on the inside. Hmm. Like it was just literally, I had the symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome. I went to the doctor they had ran several blood tests on me to check everything. Uh, they gave me an uh, uh, anti-acid pill. The blood test came back. Everything was fine. Anti-acid pill worked for, you know, a couple of weeks, and then it started coming back again. So then, you know, I talked to the doctor more about it. He's like, well, it could be something psychological. So I said, okay, well, I was thinking about going to therapy anyways. Sure. So let's try that. And as soon as I started going within – two or three weeks of therapy, my stomach issues and stuff just vanished. Like it was just incredible. It was just gone. And, you know, that time, you know, no medication or anything for it. Um, it was just great. So went through therapy and whenever I went through therapy, uh, because I have TRICARE, it, it alerted my commanders. Sure. And so, so the dreaded, uh, <laughs> the secret got out. Yeah. So, um, they had brought me in and were just like, what in the world is this? <laughs> you're diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Like what is going on? Like, sure. And I told them everything that happened and they were just like, Oh my gosh, you know, we had no idea. Like, yeah, that's pretty crazy and everything. So I, uh, you know, so went, started going through the process of being put on the, the do not arm list. And so I was at first, I was just like, Oh, shoot, you know, I might have to start looking for another job right? and stuff. And I might have to just do something else. I didn't know. And so like when for, so for a security forces member, 
an inability to carry a firearm is kind of like yeah it's a it's a big deal because obviously everything we do every, we arm up every day sure you know, we can't do our job effectively without having that without having that tool you know it's a last it's a last option last defense tool but it's also a psychological tool too sure it deters people from doing anything they're not supposed to and it helps us keep uh keep our assets safe if you know god forbid we'd ever have to use them sure um but so yeah that was one of the things and i was just like well you know what's going to happen now i didn't know and they ended up, you know, so I got put on the do not arm list and I just had to start working in the emergency control center because uh, that's one of our limited posts where you don't have to carry a firearm in um, because you're basically just like a civilian control uh, emergency controller and you're just dispatching forces, taking phone calls. And so what, what is your what is your mindset like or like at this time? Like, you know, you, you're put on the the do not arm list, like, were you actively thinking like, I'm going to have to go somewhere else. Like I'm going to have to find a new career and start all over. Yeah. And that's, that's literally what I thought. Like I was making plans of being a career, like a, I call it a career student because you're just at school all the time, Sure, you know? And I was like, I'll just go to physical therapy at Marshall or something. I'll start doing that. And I'll just be, you know, a, a career student and I'll just be, you know, that, so I was just making all these plans and thinking to myself, like, what in the world can I do? And uh, so then they started talking to me more about it. And they were just like, no, you're not going to lose your job. No, we're, we're not going to do that. So and then we'll, we're talking about your the leadership at the you know, Security Forces Squadron. Yeah, and I addressed it with leadership, and they addressed it with me. And they were just like, well, nothing's going to happen. You know, you're, you're a great asset to us, you know. You're an example for, for, you know, a lot of these people here. And, you know we love you here and we're going to take care of you. And I was just like, that's pretty awesome. You know, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And I, I, I feel like that is, that limits people to actually coming forward with these kind of personal issues too, is that assumption that leadership does not have their back. Yeah. And it's, it's really nice to hear stories of, you know, yeah. The organization coming to someone's side. Yeah. And like, uh, you know, so I was just like, man, that's, that's really awesome that they would, help me through this stuff and all that. So started the process, you know, getting the documentation in and things. And uh, we were working through it, you know, and, you know, had to get evaluated by our psychological health professional here, which is Melinda Hemstead, you know, and uh, she's great. She, you know, gave me some insights and tips on different things. Um, I only saw her one time continued with my therapy and things and continued to improve. Mm-hmm. And then eventually my therapist had cleared me of the post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, they said, you know, she was like, you know, it's not having a detrimental effect on him anymore, you know, and he's stable and in good condition. So most mental health profiles, you have to be on a profile or it's recommended that you're on a profile for six months. Mm-hmm. Um, your commander can sign a waiver and take you off of it. I believe earlier than six months, if they, are willing to accept the risk. But of course, like, especially in my career field, most commanders and stuff, they're not going to, because you're giving this guy a gun every day. Sure. You don't want to take that risk. If medical doesn't think that it's safe, then they're going to keep you on a profile. So I sat, I sat through and I recovered mentally for six months. That's how I saw it as. Sure. And one of the goals that I had for myself was, 
I'm not going to let this house haunt me. I'm going to, I sold it eventually, like a year later, uh, sold it in 2019. But while I was going through this, this profile, uh, which, you know, was, I did four, four, four or five months before I sold the house, I was on this profile and, uh, I started doing, uh, started to come to terms with everything that happened. And I can say whenever I sold the house, like I actually miss it now. Sure. Because I looked at it for what it was and a beautiful home and stuff. And it is, it was built in the 1930s, you know, original hardwood floors and everything, just a really beautiful older house. And, you know, I loved it. And that's how I wanted to leave it. I didn't want to leave it as someplace horrible. Sure. Because I don't, I didn't want that, like, I didn't want some inanimate object to get any kind of control over me or how I thought of it or how I saw it, you know. So I wanted to come to terms with it, and I did. And same thing with everything else that happened. You know, I I eventually came to terms with it. Everything happened the way it happened, and it's over with now. So if looking back over the experience, like, what would you have changed that may may have like not led you to the the do not arm list. If 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 you if you could go back, would you change anything that you did? Um, I don't think so. No, I don't have any regrets about being on the do not arm list uh, because it made me stronger as a person sure. and it made me more resilient. Because you know, I got I'm not going to lie. I got bored. I got frustrated being the emergency control center all day because it's literally a you know. At the time, it was up in the fire department. It's a box a little bit bigger than this. Sure. You know, so it's not very big. And it's always dark in there. And <laughs> nobody ever comes in there because it's a controlled center. Sure. Controlled area. And it's just, you know, just you and a computer and a TV. And me being an active individual, I was just like, I'm sitting here all day and I'm just I'm just wasting away. You know? Sure. <laughs> and being in a career field where you're like either like out in a vehicle or like out doing something constantly, yeah. that's gotta be yeah, too awful. Yeah. Which not saying anything bad about office workers or anything, because uh, you know, I mean, my my wife's one of them. Sure. But I'm just not that type of person that can just sit and be on a computer all day. You know, I don't I don't like that. And that's another reason why I chose the exercise science uh bachelor degree that I have now is just because I like getting up and moving around and showing people how to do things. Um, and so I came to terms with that as well, though, you know, I did, did things like I brought an exercise ball in there and I just used that on my free time, you know, but wasn't doing something. I would do some little exercise exercises in there. I would do yoga in there and I would do, you know, different things like that. Just came to terms with it. Sure. And, uh, Eventually, I was taken off of it, and whenever I was, uh, through the process, you know, I actually met my wife through going through all this stuff, too. Oh, wow. Yeah, so uh, after the profile and everything, we started talking. We really clicked, and, uh, you know, things moved a little bit a little bit quick, but, we, you know, we got together, and now we've got a baby that's coming in that's awesome. November. Congratulations. Yeah. So... Uh, it, what would you say to individuals going through like some heavy stuff like you did personally? Like what advice would you give them? Um, just to keep, 
just to keep your head up and to know that anything that's happening today is going to be a memory tomorrow and that anything that's happening today, you know, can affect, can affect tomorrow in a positive or negative way. So if you wanted to start changing the way things are now, you have to take the first step. You have to take the initial step and you can't lie to yourself and say that everything's just going to get better without anybody's help because it's not. You have to be the one to initiate the action to, to get better. And whether that's doing something more resilient, like exercising or looking into meditation, which has really helped me or looking into yoga, which has also really, really helped me. Um, or going to church and getting some spiritual peace uh, with, you know, with, with your God, um, whatever it is, you need to take those first initial steps because nobody else is going to do it for you. And if somebody, and you can't expect somebody else to do it for you because if you feel pressured, if you feel like somebody is just shoving stuff down your throat, sure, most people are just going to not take that. You know, and if you're one of those people that knows somebody that's going through something and needs help, you can direct them to places, but you can't lead a you can't lead a horse to water and expect it to drink. You know, of course. like they have to take that initial step. And if it's not them truly taking that initial step, it's just like with dealing with somebody that's an addict or anything else. If they're not the one that wants to get better, they're not going to get better. Um. So if you're going through stuff now and you need you need help and guidance, just know that if you're in the National Guard too, like it's not the end of the world. It's not the end of a career. I'm still employed. I'm still, you know, and some of this stuff doesn't go away. Like I still deal with stuff every now and then. Sure. And life has different stressors, like obviously having a baby and COVID and everything else. Of course. Here's a big stressor, you know, and I used to be a single guy with no kids and now I have a five-year-old that I look after and one on the way. So it's like my life has changed immensely in the past year, which is a couple, you know, a couple of different things, a couple stressors that I'm going through now that I'm having to deal with. So as a, as an NCO, uh, what has your experience kind of like enlightened you to like when, when you're dealing with junior enlisted members, like what, what has this taught you as far as like understanding the people that work under you? Well, I mean, I always bring it as like, I tell them my experience because if somebody has, is going through something right now and they hear my experience, I've personally had people open up to me just because I've told them my story, just because they, they know that I've went through something because there's this weird things that things, thing that happens whenever somebody goes through a traumatic event, at least the, this is how I saw it as is like, Whenever I went through what I went through, one of the reasons I didn't want to talk to a lot of people about it was because I thought to myself that I was like, I had went through this stuff. That person hasn't went through this stuff. So that person is like an infant and I have this experience. They don't. So they're not going to understand it. Why am I even going to talk to them? Sure. They're just an innocent child still because they haven't went through this stuff. But so I always like to tell them my experience so that if they have that, they can feel more comfortable and talking, you know, and it's very naive to think that, to think that way in that 
just because you haven't had a traumatic experience doesn't it means that you know you're not as an experienced individual i can't talk to you that's a very immature way to look at things but that's the way it happens sometimes you know everybody responds to these things differently and everybody has different outlooks and a traumatic experience can change you you know it can take that innocent you know kid that we once used to be and turn him into a hardened person sure and just because you have changed doesn't mean that you've lost that innocence that you once had you just have to rediscover it and you have to come to terms with what's happened um and everybody acts differently whenever they go through this stuff some people uh you know display different signs and symptoms some people just get an urge to do everything and anything and they want to go out and they want to you know they want to drive their cars super fast down the interstate or go skydiving and do these other adrenaline junkie stuff because they like that high because it distracts them from their current situation or like with me become a workaholic want to work out all the time so that they don't have to think about it ever it's always a distraction other people can will just sit and fall into a depression like there's multiple ranges of people that act different ways which is why i like telling people my story because no matter who they are they know okay that person's been through some stuff and you know maybe maybe i don't like working out all the time or maybe i am scared that i'm gonna die if i go skydiving but i don't know why i'm doing it still sure maybe i should go talk to this guy because he might he might you know i've been through something similar or vice versa so i always like to tell them about it and i always encourage people to get help because there's a quality of life aspect to it and uh, you know my doctor talked to me about this not too long ago too. It's like, here's a, here's a quality of life, life aspect to it, to where do you want to just work and be miserable and live in this for however long, or do you want to get better and have good relationships with people? Sure. And, you know, if you have a family, get, get that, get those relationships better or, you know, improve upon those and, you know, be the best person that you can be you know, for, for everyone else around you. So, so, uh, let, let me first say thank you for sharing your experience with us. Um, and then, uh, I'd like to leave the last word up to you. Is there anything else that like we haven't really touched on that you would like to impart to our listeners? Um, just going back on the same stuff, man, like everybody goes through stuff in their life, you know, and everybody experience not everybody has such a high threshold for trauma. Like some people, a traumatic event can be like, like I said, getting into, an, getting into a violent car accident with like your child in the back or something. That could become something traumatic. You know what I mean? Like if you, you legitimately thought maybe you were going to die or maybe your child was going to get injured or something, that can be super traumatic. Sure. Other people will look at that and be like, oh, that wasn't that bad because, you know, X, X, Y, and Z or, you know, this person did that or the other and they survived or some people will have that high threshold to where, you know, they only experience a traumatic, only think of a traumatic event or only think of, or only have those symptoms of PTSD whenever they go through something, if they go through something like combat or something like that. Sure. So there's different levels and there's nothing like saying that, oh, because this person can handle this much more, they're tougher, they're more resilient, or all oh, because this person couldn't handle this, they're not that resilient or stuff. It's like it doesn't matter because 
when it's it's about you and the thing that I've learned through going through what I've been through and stuff is it doesn't it doesn't matter if this person can go through this and you can't go through this it's it's what you go through yourself that matters it's being able to love yourself and be at peace with yourself and if for some reason like what you went through is making you upset and is really aggravating you and stuff you should go get treatment for that because at the end of the day it's it's you it's not what everybody else thinks sure it's not what uh it's not something that's going to be written on your tombstone whenever you die you know it's not something that anybody else is probably going to even talk about it's 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 you and i don't mean to sound selfish but nobody else cares but about you but yourself and maybe your your parents and things like that and other loved ones like they're the only ones that care sure so if you need help regardless of what it's for just accept that you need help and go get it and it's going to make a world of a difference you're going to feel so much better about yourself you're going to be able to accomplish more goals than you've ever been able to before you're going to have a brighter outlook on life and you're going to see things that you haven't been able to do you're going to either change your outlook and be able to do those things or you're going to come to terms with it and you're going to be comfortable you're not going to lie awake at night thinking about things all the time you're not going to want to have constant attention coming to you all the time constant reaffirmation that you're doing the right thing because you're going to be at peace with yourself and you're going to be able to know okay i love myself and i'm okay with everything that's happened and i love every decision i've made good or bad because that was my decision and it's me so well awesome man I, that thank you again for your time well, thank you for having me on i really appreciate it On the podcast now, we have Director of Psychological Health, Melinda Hempstead, and she's going to talk to us about some signs and symptoms of someone in distress. Today, I just wanted to tell you a little bit about looking out for the ones that we care about, our friends. We sometimes don't pay attention to the little signs, but distress comes in many different forms. It can't just be, it's not just one issue. It can be multiple issues at a time, or it could be one issue that has blown out of proportion. So when you're working with people, or you're even with your family and your friends, if you notice any changes in their mood or their behavior, they could either be happy one minute and then all of a sudden depressed, or vice versa. They could be normally a person that's not always happy and giddy and turn around and be happy. You might want to pay a little bit more close attention to them. Sometimes you want to also pay attention to the way their engagement and their motivation and if there are changes in their behavior of not wanting to go out and do the normal things that they used to do with you. When we care about people, we want to make sure that we pay attention to these warning signs because it could be it can mean that there's possibly more underlining issues and that we kind of need to seek out the help to get our family and our friends and our coworkers connected to the right people to help them deal with the stressors. So uh, speaking of uh, resources and people that can help, can you can you tell us uh, some of the resources that we have here at the 130th that uh, if, you know, we see a fellow airman that is, you know, in distress that we can contact or have them contact? 
Yes, most definitely. You can reach out and you can contact myself, the DPH. My extension is 3416516. Most definitely you can connect through the Air Force Connect app. Just make sure you don't share any personal information if you just want to have me give you a call. We also have our full-time chaplain, which is Major Brian Knight, and you can reach him at 3416340. And on drill weekends, we have um, our Lieutenant Colonel Bob McDonough, sorry, and you can reach him at 341-6147. You can also reach out to um, Beth Melton, our Airman Family in Readiness. These are the three major people on base. But if you also want to connect to other resources, we have Military One Source. We also have the... um, Warriors for Hope. We also have the state number, the National Hotline for Suicide. And if you were to call that one, 1-800-273-8255, you can actually talk to someone. And if you have any mood changes or just need to reach out and talk to somebody, that's a great number to call. And like Sergeant McCormick, that's, you know, that's not just a military source. You can, that's for that's anybody. That's for anybody. Yes. That's one's for anybody that wants to call. It you, doesn't have to be for the member, uh, person that's in distress. It could be for someone that cares about someone in distress. It's just a number that you can also reach out to. So, and this being in the close of September, which was Suicide uh, Awareness Month and starting in October, is there anything else you'd like to leave us with as far as like thinking about other people's well-being and just being conscious of other people? Yes. And keep in mind that even though this was Suicide Awareness Month for September, we should really pay attention and not just focus one month out of the year. Moving forward, you want to always stay connecting. Uh, Connect to Protect is actually the slogan that we're utilizing this year for making connections with people. Those connections are what will actually help prevent and reduce the risk of harm to for individuals who are thinking about suicide. If you were able just to reach out if someone you haven't talked to in a while or make a connection that way. And looking forward when the upcoming holidays, it's not easy for everybody. So especially during this COVID-19, you want to utilize those resources. Another free app that you could also utilize, it's on Android and the iPhone, is the COVID Coach. It has a lot of great resources and it also has helpful links for resources in our area as well. That's awesome. Well, uh, thank you, Melinda, and uh, I appreciate your time. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this episode of The Drop. For more information about the 133rd Wing, visit us on the web at www.130aw.ang.af.mil. Additionally, you can find us on all major social media platforms. Lastly, you can see us in the skies delivering freedom with courage. This is Master Sergeant Eugene Christ reminding you to stay ready to go.